Thanks for tuning into the XL Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer, and I'm so happy you're here. Today, I'm really looking forward to speaking with John Hollander about strategizing like a trial lawyer. John's a litigator, author, and founder of the Advocacy Club, where he trains novice lawyers to become skilled advocates. John also teaches trial advocacy techniques to law students. Welcome to the XL Legal Podcast, John. Hello, Shelley. Thanks so much for being here. I thought it would be kind of fun to talk about uh, at the outset, the attributes of a good trial lawyer. Just wondering if the idea of just being able to shoot from the hip in the courtroom is something that would, in your mind, be a characteristic of a good, successful trial lawyer. That would certainly be the public image, but it's not to me. To me, the hallmark of a successful lawyer is somebody who is true to him or herself. People can be shy and be a good trial lawyer. People can be aggressive and outgoing and be a good trial lawyer. If you are authentic and you are true to what your own innate characteristics are, you have every chance of being successful. There are attributes which are necessary, but they are applicable to all professionals. You have to have ethics. You have to know your stuff. You have to be prepared to put the time in to do the research. You have to be thorough. You have to be careful. But as far as the delivery style, I will say that if you are comfortable with speaking from the hip, then you are less likely to be stressed when put in that situation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how about particular skills? Are there any sort of skills across the board would be helpful to succeed as a trial lawyer? Again, these are skills that apply to virtually all professionals. So you have to be creative. You have to be thoughtful. You have to have a decent intelligence, of course. You have to grasp and retain information. And you have to be able to get rid of that information. Hmm. Because like a bathtub, you fill it up as you get ready for a case. But you have to be able to empty it. Otherwise, you'll blow up at some point. <laughs> along with the bathtub. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, so on that point, I'm just wondering, when it comes to preparing for a trial, are there any sort of tips that you might pass on uh, to, you know, junior lawyers, even, um, you know, seasoned lawyers who maybe haven't been in court for a while, uh, particularly given uh, the situation we're in now? Well, I have a lot of tips that apply both to trial lawyers and other lawyers who may be not thinking of themselves as litigators. Almost all cases involve potential disputes. And so case analysis, which is no different than trial preparation, starts when you first run into the case. It might be your first receipt of a memorandum or a document. It might be your initial meeting with a client or intake of a potential client. The major tip though is to think, excuse me, your major tip is to think strategically, which is how can I prove this? How likely is it that something will go wrong? How can I reduce the risk that it goes wrong? And how will it be seen by either a judge, by an opponent, by a mediator, or by the client, him or herself? 
Hmm. And any particular techniques to help you get there? I mean, that sounds like there's a lot to unpack. <laughs> well, there are. Uh, there are many things to unpack. And the problem with any profession is that it takes a fair amount of time and repeat tries before you become comfortable with it. Like riding a bicycle, you know you're doing it right if you stay upright for long enough to get to your destination. In trial litigation, just like any other form of professional practice, frequently you don't know that you've got it right until you've succeeded. So keep trying and get second opinions, get guidance, but keep trying. Mm -hmm. I imagine there are a bunch of different, or I've certainly read about a different bunch of different sort of methods of this all important case analysis that you're talking about. What is your preferred method of teaching uh, case analysis? So I have a three-step formula, which I teach young lawyers, teach the law students, and I teach other lawyers in my advocacy club. First, boil down the case to its bare essentials, but be neutral. Don't put any spin on it. Figure out what the issue is, figure out all of the essentials that are necessary to resolve that issue. Then you spin it for your side. At its best, how does your case look? What evidence are you able to marshal? What could go wrong with that evidence and how are you gonna deal with those risks? Then you do exactly the same thing from your opponent's point of view. That way you're able to meet the case that will be presented against you. So if you do all three of those things, figure out the case neutrally, spin it for your side, then spin it for the other side, then you will be ready for whatever happens. And what do you mean by spin? And how, how do you do that? Well, spin is no different than using language and examples that put your case in the very best light. So consider Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It's an old fairy tale, which actually is the reverse of what you think it is. Originally, the bad guy was Goldilocks in the German fairy tale from the 1800s. <laughs> but uh, we all know Goldilocks goes into the forest. Goldilocks finds a house. Goldilocks does her thing with the uh, the porridge, with the chairs, with the bed, and then the bears come and chase Goldilocks away. So that would be fairly neutral presentation. You spin it for Goldilocks by accenting who Goldilocks is, how big and nasty the bears were, how needy she was, how she was dependent upon others not to break her trust. But at the same time, you could spin it from the point of view of the bears. This is a case of home invasion. And isn't it awful that bears who live in this sanctuary in the middle of the forest come home to find somebody's invaded it and put them at risk? Mm -hmm. So by spinning the way a politician might or an advertising executive might, you're able to demonstrate your case in its very best light. Mm -hmm. And I've also heard the how important it is to have a theory and a theme of your case. So is that part of the spin? And, and what's the difference between theory and theme and spinning? Or are they all kind of wrapped up together? Well, my co-teacher at U, uh, U Ottawa Common Law, Stephen Blair, likes to say that theory is why your case must win. Theme is why your case should win. Hmm. 
So the must win would be the first part, which I discussed, which is the neutral presentation. If you then set out all of your facts, all of your important points in order, that is why the case must win. These, case, these facts in this order leads to this result. The theme is the human element, why it should, why does justice demand this result? So the theme of uh, Goldilocks and the Three Bears might be the theme of either sanctuary and home invasion from the point of view of the bears, or the theme might be reliance, dependence, and vulnerability on the part of Goldilocks. So mm -hmm. this one or two word phrase should permeate all of your decisions which go into how you're gonna present this fact or that element. Mm -hmm. And what about uh, what you mentioned before about sort of spinning from the uh, opposition's perspective? How would you do that in the Goldilocks example? Well, it's no different than doing it for yourself. You just have to put yourself in your opponent's shoes. How would they present your case uh, to its worst light. And then you ask yourself, okay, now I've spun my case and I've spun their case, which one do I like most? And if you like their case more than your own, settle it. <laughs> hmm. oh, good point, good point. <laughs> wow, yeah, wow, that's really useful. And what what are some of the challenges that students and, and lawyers have in uh, learning these new techniques? Well, you'd think that this is not a new technique. You'd think this is something taught in first year law school, but go back to your own days in law school, which are no different than today. In your own days, as a student, you read case law, but the day before trial or the day before the decision came out, both sides thought that they were gonna prevail, at least in some respect. Both lawyers were not idiots. Both lawyers had grounds for doing it. And so the, problem that a law student faces is moving out of the situation where all the evidence is known, which is the case for a trial judge who hears it all, and moving into the unknown, where you don't know how your witness is going to be cross-examined, you don't know how your witness is going to testify, even with preparation, because mm -hmm. one of the dirty secrets of litigation is that witnesses do not perform to their optimum at trial, certainly mm -hmm. not all the time. And so uh, this is equally true for transactions and solicitors lawyers, because when it comes to the event, they don't know whether their client has the heart for this fight, or they don't know whether the client's gonna change his or her mind. They don't know whether there's an off ramp, which doesn't present itself up front. So uh, what I'm talking about is litigation technique, but it applies equally to transactions lawyers. Mm -hmm, mm hmm. So what are some of the um, sort of, I guess, strategies you've used to help students sort of get beyond the, that roadblock or I guess just a challenge? Well, in law school, as well as in the advocacy club, we have to teach two different techniques and they they're different techniques, but they correlate. You have to gather information and then you have to sort information. And lawyers don't gather information and then sort it. Lawyers gather information, then they sort it, then they gather more information, then they sort it. So we 
find difficulty sometimes in getting students to dummy down their thinking because they all want to accomplish so much right off the bat. And we tell them, no, no, first principles, figure out what you've got first and then put it in order. Mm-hmm. And sometimes students have a lot of difficulty with that. Mm-hmm. And what do you mean by order? So I identified that there were several elements that go into each case. That would be the theory of the case. These are the essential points that you've got to be able to establish to reach a successful conclusion of your issue. And sometimes you don't know all those elements, or sometimes you think that this is important when it turns out not to be, sorting important from unimportant. And that can be very, very much of a challenge. Uh, Mm -hmm. Teaching that skill, this may be fun, but it's not important. Or this may seem trivial, but that's where the whole case lies. That could be a different, difficult skill to teach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, and I'm I'm just trying to figure out how yeah, how are you doing that because I know the advocacy club has been so successful. Um, the students who've are continuing to work with the advocacy club have just said they've learned so much and they couldn't have been um, wouldn't have been comfortable in the courtroom without uh, having had that practice so I'm just you know trying to get a sense of how how do you how do you deal with that in the advocacy club and yeah so the advocacy club is teaching by practicing so we present a principle we demonstrate the principle and then the participants practice it with feedback. And Mm. the more they practice, the more they succeed. These are very much bicycle riding techniques and you gotta get up there and try it. And so what people like the most about trial advocacy class and advocacy club is that it presents a safe forum for them to try stuff out without uh, injuring themselves. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I'm thinking too, way, way back when I was in law school, I don't even think we had trial advocacy classes, to be honest. Um, but just thinking that we would have read about it and we would have then tried to apply the skills that we read about uh, the first time we stepped in the courtroom. I know that was me. I could just sort of, oh, I had no idea what to do, but I'd read about it. And then, you know, wasn't very successful at first. So the idea is uh, that's just fantastic that they have the opportunity to practice and get feedback. And I imagine it's feedback from you. Is it also feedback from the other participants? It depends upon the circumstance, but feedback from the other participants is not designed to instruct the person who is uh, presenting. It's designed to focus the attention of the participant who is giving the feedback, not the one receiving it. Mm. Uh, So one of the hallmarks of the advocacy club is that we get other advocacy club members. These would be junior lawyers and some who aren't quite so junior anymore as team leaders. So sometimes the feedback's coming from a lawyer with two, three, four years experience, but who is versed in advocacy club techniques. At my trial ad class, I have four teaching assistants who are junior and not so junior litigators, anywhere from uh, three to 10 years out. And they're the ones who do the feedback in the breakout groups. So the magic is small group so that you get a lot of chance to practice and then feedback from somebody who knows a lot more than you do. Hmm. Hmm. Excellent. Excellent. 
to go back um, to a topic we were discussing um, a few minutes ago, the theory and the theme of the case. And I'm just wondering how we would wind that into telling a convincing story. Because my understanding is that litigation at its heart is really an applied type of storytelling. And so I'm wondering how we would use theory and theme to develop a persuasive story, I guess, ultimately. Well, there's two components to the story. One of them is how you tell it. And that is speech writing and speech delivery. But the second one is case analysis. And so you have to distinguish between what's important and what's not important. And once you've done that, then you deliver a speech the same way you would a presentation to a uh, uh, rotary club. Uh, it's, you, you start with your theme, not with your theory. You then explain how it is you're gonna reach your conclusion. Then you reach your conclusion by making your points. I remember uh, Justice John Laskin likes to say in law, judges don't want to be treated like the readers of creative fiction. They don't mm. want to wait until the end to find out that the butler did it. Tell the judge or tell the mediator or tell your client, if you're delivering an opinion, what the opinion is straight up. Then tell them how you're going to get there. He mm -hmm. calls that point first. Mm -hmm. So in my recitation of how to do the theory, I say, make your points in order. Each point should be obvious and stated categorically, then should be explained. So to make a argument persuasive, you have to add in some of your spin. And then it's a question of personal taste, how far you are going to push the envelope. Some people, and we've seen them in open court or we've seen them on television, go over the top. And that works for some people. It doesn't work for most of us. We're not comfortable with it. That's not who we are. But still, for some, it works. And so mm -hmm. you make your points in your personal way persuasive and follow the formula of point first and stick to the script and you'll be okay. Mm -hmm. And what about, um, if we go back to sort of the, the idea of a story, um, is it always obvious who the characters are? Is that something that's fairly easy to decide or, yeah? <laughs> well, it's easy to decide by the end of the piece. It may not be easy to decide when you're doing intake with your client the first time. So there is a missing character in Goldilocks and the Three Bears. The Three Bears may say, well, we agree that Goldilocks is vulnerable, she's reliant, she's trusting, but where were her parents? And it may not be obvious in the first instinct that there are parents out there who could be blamed for this. So at the time that you're making your opinion or that you are making your argument or delivering your speech in a mediation, it should be obvious who the parties are, but mm -hmm. it may not be early in the early stage. Right, right. Yeah. And what about the perspective? Is it always, you're, are you always telling the story from your client's perspective? The, the easy answer to that is the more senior you get, the more able you are to deliver a persuasive speech that is aimed at the opposition's perspective. So you try to structure your argument or your story in a way that appeals to your audience. And it may well be that you say, well, my friend is saying this, but look where that goes. 
and then you work your friend's argument in a way that hurts your friend. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Any other elements of storytelling that are useful uh, to keep in mind as we're preparing? The most important thing of storytelling is to keep two people in mind, your audience and yourself. Your audience is important because if you tell a story that passes them by because your audience doesn't understand it or that turns them off because you've made references that bother them that you can't resolve easily. So that's one thing. But yourself, that's important too because you've got to stay within yourself. You've got to be authentic. And it's the lack of authenticity that sometimes really hurts in the persuasive element of a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's such an interesting point because I think that a lot of times we just feel like we're acting, you know, that uh, we have to act like the trial lawyer we've seen on TV or wherever. Uh, yeah, and what are some of the tips that you give to junior lawyers who really haven't developed that sense of who they are in the courtroom um, when they go in the first few times? Well, one one excellent tip is to record yourself. And the reason I say that is because sometimes we don't know about our mannerisms until we see them on tape. Mm -hmm. We may not know about how often we say um, or how often we say like, or we may not know that we put our hands in our pockets, or we may not know some other characteristic. We may not know that we speak too quickly. Most of us are aware of this, but many are not. And if you're aware of a problem, then you could work to fix it. Mm-hmm. And particularly if you see it yourself from, exactly. the, again, sort of from the audience's perspective. Yeah, I remember doing media training years ago. And uh, the first thing I did was videotape uh, us giving a presentation or answering a question from the media. And I couldn't believe how often I was blinking my eyes. I thought, wow, I never noticed that, but I sure worked at uh, trying to stop that blinking. Uh, Yeah. So the idea of authenticity, is that something that um, is teachable? How how do you teach people to be authentic? So I now teach together with Christina Watt, who's a noted actress in Ottawa. Uh, Christina and I worked together to develop a course where we taught junior lawyers and more senior lawyers how to give a presentation. And that focused on Christina's theory of authenticity. And so we banded together. We actually wrote a short handbook on authenticity, which is available at my advocacy club website on Amazon. And the idea is that there's several important things to deliver in a speech, but authenticity is the most important. And authenticity is really eye contact. Hmm. When you come right down to it, as long as you are speaking, looking at your audience, even if it's 50 people and you're looking left, right, and center, if you're looking at them while you're speaking, the chances are pretty good that you're delivering yourself as opposed to a written uh, pre-prepared presentation. And when you, well, the first thing that comes to mind when you say looking at your audience, I mean, I've been in situations where the eye contact is a little intense and kind of creepy. Like, what do you mean by looking at, you know, you don't want to be staring too long at one person, I imagine. Agreed, you shouldn't. And you don't have to. And if you're delivering a speech, unless you're very good at memorizing, 
certainly I'm not, then you're not staring at your audience, your client or your witness. You are looking at your notes and you're looking at your audience. The idea is that when you're speaking, you should be looking at the audience. You're allowed, in fact, encouraged to take a break and look down at your notes because you also want your audience to digest what you've just said. And so there's a number of smaller techniques about how to accent the last words you said, how to choose the words to accent, how to raise and fall your voice when it comes to certain rhetorical techniques. We also teach those, but they all feed the essential authenticity technique, which is looking at your audience and giving yourself. And, and sorry, and giving yourself? Yes, giving yourself, absolutely. It's uh, presenting, this is what I have to say. This is who I am. You can believe me because I believe this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that is so important that you believe in what you're saying and then delivering it from that place as opposed to, you know, here I am performing and I have to convince everybody uh, of this position as opposed to going at a, coming at it from a place that you're convinced because I don't think any amount of sort of uh, strategy can help in that situation. I agree. I agree. Uh, what are the, uh, I'll call him an actor, I don't think that that's fair, is Jon Stewart, uh, the originally comedy channel, and now he's quite accomplished in other areas as well. But when Jon Stewart is presenting, you know you're getting Jon Stewart. You're mm-hmm. not getting a written speech. And he deviates from the speech. He improvises. He's really good at persuading you that even if you disagree, that's who he is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that's something obviously that uh, comes with confidence, experience, practice, um, all of those things. So thank goodness for the advocacy club that uh, you know students and, and young lawyers have the opportunity to do that. I'm just wondering too, when you talk about the, the eye contact, how... <laughs> How can we do that in the virtual environment when we're doing a lot of um, court proceedings on Zoom or other virtual platforms? It's very difficult to look at someone. I mean, even look at someone, whether or not you're looking in in the eye. uh, Yeah, it's very, very off-putting sometimes. So is that something that you focus on at all in your in in the courses that you teach, either through the advocacy club or trial advocacy at the law school? The answer to that one is we have not yet done so, but we have a program in preparation, in formation right now, which will present advocacy online. It is basically, it's going to be a adaptation of authenticity for a non-authentic environment, which is what uh, Mm -hmm. Zoom and uh, Teams and the other uh, platforms are. But the idea is that just because you're looking at a screen doesn't mean that authenticity goes by the boards. You should be looking at the screen and not at your notes. And one of the nice things about the technique is if you look at your notes, you're pausing and that lets the audience catch up. If you're looking at the screen and not at your notes, then the audience knows that that's what you have to say. So the basic technique is the same, but there are other ones. And you've run into this in your podcasting. Sometimes the environment that you're uh, 
counterparty has is not ideal. Well, mm -hmm. if you're a lawyer doing advocacy on Zoom, you have total control of your environment. So make mm -hmm. sure that your Wi-Fi is perfect. Make sure that your camera's properly set up. Make sure that your lighting is good. Make sure that you're the right distance from the camera and that the camera is tilted at an angle which is best able to present who you are. There's a bunch of these other things which are necessary to improve the environment, just not things that lawyers have been taught. Right, right, right. Yeah, so interesting. The whole world is changing. Uh, yeah. Well, John, thank you so much for these terrific tips. I'm just wondering if there's anything that uh, we didn't touch on that you think would be useful to pass on to listeners. Well, I've got a couple of things to suggest that are very important to the Advocacy Club. And the first one is that you learn by doing. And so what I mean by that is if you learn a technique, try it out and keep trying it out and don't give up until you've made it your own. Because you can take a technique that I provide or that somebody else provides, it's not your technique until you've worked it and you're comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. The second one is interaction with your colleagues. Collegiality and networking are really important in the age of Zoom. You know, they were really important before that, but they're more important as we become more remote through uh, our reaction to what's happened in the past year. So keep up any form of interaction that you can so that you can maintain your colleagues, you can maintain your networks, and you can stop being so insular and reinforcing your own uh, second guessing and your own uncertainties. Mm -hmm. Great, great point. And is that something that um, the Advocacy Club is offering? Is there, are, are the members still connecting sort of in that way? Well, there's a new initiative that started in the late fall, started because four of the young Advocacy Club members, these would be, uh, initially it was third and fourth year, but they've been joined by someone who's in her 10th year, I believe. And they've run a series of social events. They've done three, and there's a fourth one in planning, uh, in which both advocacy club members and members of the CCLA, that's the County of Carlton Law Association, and most recently law students and others have been able to get online and interact with club members and each other in a very social and collegial manner. This is an initiative that came from within club members. It was not driven top down by Juliet Napton and me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I mean, I feel like uh, there's so much more to learn about the Advocacy Club. Where can people go to learn more about, uh, about the club online? So there's two ways that they can do it. First one is to go to advocacyclub.ca. That's our principal website. But the second one is that I've just initiated a streaming video service which is at acmasterclass.com, in which we have very high-end quality video, that's 4, 4G video that is professionally recorded, which present the boot camp from the Advocacy Club, five sets of techniques that we teach both trial ad students and Advocacy Club members about strategic thinking and gathering information. Mm -hmm. Terrific. Terrific. Well, thank you so much, John. Super, super helpful. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thank you, Shelley. I appreciate you doing this. 
Thanks for joining me today on the Excel Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm always looking for topic and guest ideas. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at xllegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L-E-G-A-L.com.